You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 165, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is Ray Dogum. He's the host and creator of the Health Unchained podcast, which is a fantastic podcast which deals with blockchain. And we're going to talk about applications for blockchain. And we've talked about blockchain in this show a couple times back, way back in episode 14 and 18, where we talked about credentialing for physicians and also a way of patients basically having... Uh, more control over their health information with Brendan Hodge with um, Citizen Health. And then also we talked about, in general, business applications and ways of incorporating the blockchain into your practice and as a patient into maybe payment for services. And those you can be found at episodes 140 and 141. You can find access to all those shows, links to the shows, and also, of course, show notes for this this show, with specifically with Ray's podcast at theparadox.com slash 165. For those of you who listen weekly, I apologize, it's been a couple weeks, but I took over a new podcast called The Final Four is Not on the Schedule, which specifically deals with Michigan State basketball. And so if you're not interested in Michigan State University basketball, then you certainly would be interested in that podcast. But if you obviously have an interest in Michigan State basketball, I'd recommend you check it out. It's called The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. But anyway, I was trying to kind of get that situated as far as new co-hosts for that show. And so that's where I've been gone for a couple weeks and spring break is coming up, so I might be gone next week too. We'll kind of see what happens with our interviewing schedule. But with that said, I think you really enjoy the show. It's a really interesting discussion where we talk about blockchain technology, how it's going to transform medicine, how it's going to change the interface for physicians and for patients, and even the supply chain and other things with medicine that you may not even think about much, like how can we make sure we have the right ingredients and the right components for our pharmaceuticals. So that's something that's very important. Obviously, things we don't think about too much in the United States, but other parts of the world, there's less security, I think probably is the best way of putting it, with trusting your sources of materials and pharmaceuticals and agents. So anyway, that's a real interesting discussion. We're going to get into that too. So buckle up and enjoy the episode with Ray Dogan from Healthcare Unchained Podcast on Unlocking the Blockchain in Medicine. Enjoy. All right, well, I'm here with Ray Dogum. Ray is from Health Unchained and the podcast, which is about all things blockchain with healthcare. And he talks to basically people within the healthcare space who are working with blockchains and or telehealth or basically automation, AI, all those sorts of things, things that I know zero about, but I find very interesting. So Ray, thanks so much for coming on The Paradox. Awesome. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, my pleasure, obviously. So this is episode 165. And I say that only because we've had four episodes in the show way back in the beginning, episode 14 and 18, where we talked about credentialing, we talked about citizen health, and then 
uh, just in general on blockchain and 140 and 141. Uh, so people should have a basic understanding of what blockchain is. But why don't you just go in and I guess just give a very cursory explanation of what blockchain is and why you think it matters for healthcare? Sure. So blockchain, uh, there's a lot to explain about blockchain, but essentially it's a distributed ledger, sort of a shared database that can allow multiple stakeholders or multiple participants to interact with each other that doesn't rely on them actually trusting each other. So in a way, if you take the Bitcoin blockchain as an example, uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain, individuals can transact and send Bitcoin to each other without without having to rely on a centralized entity to facilitate those transactions. Uh, as you imagine now, as you can imagine now, we have banks to facilitate financial transactions for us. And in healthcare, why that's important is because we do have these centralized entities or organizations. It could be your, you know, providers, EMR, it could be your health systems database. And instead of relying on those centralized entities or organizations to store and manage your data, the promise of blockchain or really decentralized ledger technology is that the individual or patient can own their data themselves and move their data to where they want to um, without relying on that other centralized party to do so for them. So that's the promise behind blockchain uh, for healthcare. And there's many use cases around that, but that's like essentially uh, one of the big use cases, I would say, for the future. And and when you first enter the space and you hear, and you start reading things and you read about trustless, I think, you know, if you're, if you don't ever think about what money is, I think you immediately think, oh, so these are people who don't trust each other. There's some sort of nefarious things going on. And I think people don't recognize what, when people say trustless, it's actually a good thing in the sense that you hand me a $10 bill. I don't really have to know anything about you. I don't, you know, I don't need to know where that $10 came from. All I know is that it's a $10 bill and I know that I trust that it's got value. Right. And so in the same sense that these blockchains, they have, when, it's, when you hear the term trustless, it does not mean that it's a bunch of criminals running around. It's that actually, right. <laughs> that you don't have to know all the background. You just know that the system is, has some integrity to it, right? There's some sort of, um, that you trust the, the system itself and you don't have to worry about where it's coming from because you know that if it's there, it's, it's accurate. Exactly, exactly. And you can think about this many different ways if you consider the supply chain in healthcare. So there's medical devices, there are drugs that are being moved around the world um, and making sure all of those components or materials are moved in a way that doesn't get, um, you know, there's no party that's interfering with that shipment or anything and making sure all the drugs are not, you know, getting sent to a different organization for some reason. You can trust that the data that's put into the blockchain is never going to change. It's immutable. And in that way, anyone who has access to that specific blockchain, because it, you could have private or permissioned blockchains, um, whoever has access to that can see the data and then they can you know, monitor and to make sure there's no sort of funny business going on <laughs> in a way. Right. And, and uh, you know, I think when people look at blockchain initially and they think about it in healthcare, naturally you go to, well, it's basically you're accepting Bitcoin for services, right? And so that's, I think, the, the first thought people have. It's all the other stuff that I think that is more interesting and that there's much more um, that you that you build on top of this, right? I think, and that's where it gets sort of confusing and you may end up, end up in a little bit in the weeds with like second layer and third layer sort of solutions for problems. Can you explain beyond uh, beyond payment systems with blockchain or Ethereum, what what people use, what you know ideas that are out there right now that, that someone, a patient, for instance, would understand what the blockchain is. Like for instance, you mentioned holding data. How does that work? And sort of what is it, what would that look like, I guess, in the future or maybe sure. present? So, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So if you consider, you know, yourself as a patient, everyone is a patient in one way or another and mm -hmm. being able to manage and control your own data right now is pretty difficult because let's say you go to a hospital and some data is generated about you, your provider, multiple providers, probably you have labs, x-rays, um, blood draws, all these things go into your EMR system. If you wanted to move that data into another health system, let's say you move, for example, uh, it's not so simple to do that because it's you have to first request permission for that organization to authorize the data to be sent. And then hopefully the receiver of that data gets it. Sometimes that's done via fax. Now there are some standards like uh, FHIR, FHIR, where they're able to pull that data 
using just APIs, which is nice. Um, but again, at the end of the day, we're still relying on these organizations to manage our data and asking for permission to, to grab them. And what we believe, um, you know, if we, I work at Equidium Health and what we're developing is a platform to allow patients to consent to share their data granularly. So in a way you can say, I want to share my mental health data with this specific provider for the next three months only. And you can also say, I want to share my x-rays with, um, you know, my, my doctor for a week or two weeks, or I want to share it with my caregiver or maybe some hospice center, depending on who's asking for it, because there's a lot of people that may need to see your health data, maybe your employer. Um, so we're trying to develop a way to allow patients to do this in a more convenient way instead of the way it is now, um, and potentially also incentivize patients to share their data with researchers, because there's a lot of hidden information that we store in these EMRs that would be amazing for researchers to dig into um, and maybe even identify certain you know, medical or clinical pathways that we haven't seen before, or, or maybe, maybe we haven't realized the benefits that um, some drugs have for specific patients. We can use our genome as part of that, you know, calculation as well. So that's one way. Yes. So I guess it, a way of looking at, you know, as, as a patient, you go to, let's say you go to your urologist and you have some procedure done or they, you have a visit, then mm -hmm. you go to your internist and you go to a neurologist. Let's say you have three different specialists in the past, let's say 20 years ago when everyone was on paper, they all had paper records. And so the urologist would not know what the neurologist was doing versus the internal medicine. Now they would send letters of referral saying maybe a copy of the visit to maybe your internist is the one sort of collecting all the data, you know, referring to these different specialists. Yeah. And if you were to move, leave town and go to, you know, move across the state, you'd have to file a release of information with all the different people who have your notes, right? They have, and in this case, I think, you know, we say data and I think it's hard to sometimes realize what that is, but so that's like your medical records. And so you'd, You'd ask us for a release. If it's a large healthcare system, I'll tell you it takes a couple of weeks to get this, you know, processed and then to get it right. And so the people who own the data, the information about you, your visits, and everything, are actually the people who provided the care. And so what you're saying is you're kind of perhaps moving this into a different realm where now you flipped it on its head, and now the patient's the one who has all the stuff. And when they go places, they say, "Okay, here's the stuff, and I'm going to give you this stuff." Or, or maybe if you say you need all my information, I can release all of it or what, right? Is that kind of what you're talking about? So that now the patients have all that and they just sort of carry it with them wherever they go. That's essentially right. Yeah, that's correct. So it's sort of like a, a data locker that patients can access. They'll have the private key to access that data. So it will be encrypted, meaning that, um, for example, using Equidium Health as an example. So we're creating this platform. Our data locker is not something that, uh, or your patient, as a patient, your data locker is hidden from our visibility. So we can't see it, um, but you have access to it and you have access to sharing it as well. So essentially that's what it means. Yeah. So then how does the blockchain come into that in the play there? Because I mean, I know there's a cryptography with the currencies and stuff. So how, you know, where, where does the blockchain fit, feed into this? Because it sounds to me like in some ways you sort of, you'd say, well, you're just carrying like a disc around or a hard drive of all your information or it's on the cloud or for instance. So how is this a little bit different with the blockchain? Right. So in terms of the patient's experience, it will feel like it's being stored on a cloud server, right? Because, you know, their data is going to be online somewhere. Um, the difference is again, it's encrypted. So only they can access it, but it's not like a um, stored in one place. It, the data itself, depending on what it is, could be in stored in a distributed way. So there's many different places where parts of that data is stored. So the file can be broken up into many pieces um, and stored that way. Alternatively, which is probably the, the first version of this is we're gonna have the actual files being stored on a private cloud somewhere. And then the access to that will be hashed on the blockchain. So the only individual can, that can access it is the one with the hash key, uh, private key. So that's how we're developing it now. But the real fun comes in when you think about ways to incentivize people to take care of their health and to, you know, be more aware of their health situation overall. I think that's something that 
you know, right now patients don't feel very empowered because they kind of feel like they're sheep going into, you know, a system <laughs> and the healthcare insurance companies and providers sort of control standards of care. They control medicine and all that. So I think we can see a future where medicine is more open source in a way. It's kind of like more open. Um, but again, we have to be really careful with that as well, because we don't want to have patients being, you know, looking at things online and trying different types of therapeutics that might not be approved by the FDA and things like that. So there's going to be a interesting phase or transitional period when, from us moving from a, you know, provider centric healthcare system to a patient centric healthcare system. Well, I, I would say in the, as far as using your sheep analogy, that a lot of physicians, especially in primary care, feel like sheep shearers, that they just have a mm. line of sheep coming through and they're just like, not, you know, just kind of <laughs> take it off the wall and they just move through and you don't have that relationship that they want to have. Yeah. Uh, so one thing I think that is not, that was surprising to me to, that I've learned recently when, when I talked to some other guests is that there is this data aspect to things that I think you don't realize or recognize the value of your information, your demographic information, age, sure. you know, what sort of medications you've been on, and that these entities that own your data or that have your medical records, let's say in the EMR, that they will sell to researchers. They'll sell de-identified, so it's not like you know your name, like Eric Larson or something, but it'll be you know patient X and patient Y. But uh, they actually can sell that and then use that. And so this would be, I guess, a way. In some ways, you're saying that now you would you would have you provide consent for giving this information, and that you'd be paid in some way, right? Is that, uh, is that like that part of the, the process? Yeah, that is definitely one of our um, anticipated sort of features, right? You'll have the patient being able to consent to share their data, but not only that, you'll, as a patient, you'll know when your data was used and which specific research paper was published that used your data. So you'll have like an audit trail of how your data was accessed throughout time. And I think that's an important part of this as well. Um, so that, you know, you know, you'll be aware of it, but you can be reimbursed for, for, for providing that. And this is especially important for, let's say people with rare diseases, because it's hard to come by some patients with a specific rare disease. And if researchers are looking for patients with that rare disease, um, they're willing to pay actually a lot of money to learn more about them and, you know, make them a data point on their, in their research really. Um, so we feel that patients should be reimbursed for that. I mean, they, they're the ones that are Kind of struggling through this diseases it it doesn't make sense for the healthcare system to profit off of this when the patient is the one that's going through um you know the experience of having that disease how far away are we from getting this i mean is this something that's going to happen in a couple of years or what i mean things just kind of they transform very quickly it seems but sometimes i hear these ideas and then you know 20 years that we still don't have flying cars for instance right <laughs> so is this yeah. something that's going to be is around the corner I would say in terms of the pilot stage, like companies are testing this already now. So I think uh, it'll take, I would say maybe two to three years for it to become more widely adopted and for it to really reach that scale where, you know, we'd expect from a platform technology or software company, I would say like three to five years. And this will be a very hot, uh, important concept for all healthcare leaders, I would, I would think, especially if you think about how decentralized clinical trials is evolving. And that's an important part of um, research as well. A lot of patients just can't come to the facility, can't go to the research site to, you know, conduct some of uh, the interviews or conversations that need to be done with the providers or PIs. So enabling telehealth with blockchain, incentivizing people to participate in these studies, it's going to really accelerate science. We think it's going to accelerate research overall. And I, you know, I think it'll be happening very much sooner than we all think, I, I believe. Yeah. I mean, it, when it comes to things, you have to have incentives, right. For things to get created. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a, there's certainly the incentive for patients to have privacy data, but no, it's, you know, and this is a market for it. No one really cares about it unless the patients really know enough. Right. What are the, where are the barriers to this? I mean, it, I, obviously you can say people who own control the data now, they're selling it. Well, they don't want to give it up. They're not going to want to, they're going to try and resist this through, you know, regulatory or legislative action. How do you, do you see those barriers as being significant to overcome? Or is this something that, you know, is already, that is going to be, there's too much financial incentive for it to be stopped. 
I do think there's, um, that is a huge challenge right now. The way that it works, these, you know, providers, healthcare systems, they do have a lot of power and they do, um, do not want to give that up. I think it's going to take some time for them to find a model that still works for them because I think they want to be involved in this process. Of course, you can't have healthcare without providers. So it's not like we're disintermediating doctors. Um, we're actually trying to help doctors be more connected with their patients in a way that's more personable. And I think that's something most doctors do want and also giving them the opportunity for doctors to kind of maybe, I don't want to say deviate from standards of care, but allow the opportunity for more personalized medicine, I would say. And I think that's something that many patients want because they do feel like sheep. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think some other barriers include just the experience of using any sort of web three or blockchain ledger technology. It's, it's not as convenient right now as the web two um, systems we have or the web two sort of, you know, you log into your account, you have a password. If you forget your password, you can just get it reset. Um, and then, you know, everything works that way. And a centralized company manages all that for you very nicely with a web three world with blockchain, there is more onus on the patient or an individual to manage their data. So um, it's going to require some education around what that means. And I would consider that also a, you know, a barrier in some ways, especially for, if you think about elderly population, aging uh, you know, patients, they might not be ready to adopt this new technology so quickly. I mean, I'm not saying that they're not, you know, there, there are many that do just some um, don't feel like the need to, you know, they've been living this way for 50, 60, 80 years. So they're not really inclined to keep a private key you know, stored safely somewhere that holds all their right. health data. <laughs> right. They don't have a, they're not used to having a seed phrase. Uh, yeah. You know, my dad still refers to smartphones as gizmos. So I, I don't entirely expect that, that adoption. And they're the ones who use more health care than the, than others. Exactly. Right. So, right? Yeah. so that's why the adoption, I suppose, will be somewhat challenging. And to be clear, you know, when you talk about providers owning the data, I, I would hardly think there are many physicians actually preventing that because they don't really control any of this data when it comes to the, if the mm -hmm. MRs. They don't own the MRs. I mean, maybe as shareholders or something, but, you know, that you're just, you're an employee of the healthcare system or you're, you know, you have your own EMR that you just purchased for your small private practice. You don't really probably have any idea what's happened to that data either for the most part. So why don't you go into a couple real interesting cases of people who are using blockchain right now with technology that's working and that is, that's actually using blockchain, either whether it's telehealth or something else. Yeah, um, there's a few. So I'd like to talk about actually the partnership we have with the VA. So um, Equitium Health formed a partnership with the VA Dixon Center, where we are allowing veterans to, like I said, share their data in a granular way with their providers. So um, a major thing in, you know, for veterans is that they have um, preconditions for like PTSD, and there's a lot of other mental health issues that they experience. Um, suicide rates are rather high in that population group. So right. privacy seems to be an important piece for them. So we've partnered with them to, uh, we were creating this app called the hero app uh, to allow them to share their data more fine granular way. Um, so that's one. Uh, there's a bunch that have been pretty successful, a bunch of companies that have been successful not using healthcare data at all, or not using patient data, I should say. Uh, things like provider credentialing. So there's many companies in that space. Um, uh, there's one, Procredics, I think is one that I'm familiar with. There's a few others. I've actually interviewed a few on my podcast, so you could probably check that out if you guys are interested in learning more about that specific use case. Um, supply chain is really big as well. So like being able to track and trace all the materials needed for creating drugs, it's, it's really important. And especially for countries where there's a lot of counterfeiting. So if there's a lot of drugs being counterfeited, um, allowing a patient or a pharmacy to make sure that the specific drug that they're giving to their patient or to themselves is safe, it's correct. And then, um, you know, that's a big use case. Uh, so can, yeah. about that, how, how does the blockchain solve that problem? I guess I, I don't yeah. understand exactly what, what is specifically about a blockchain is going to prevent, you know, bad ingredients in, in a medication pharmaceutical agent. 
Absolutely. So I think when we talk about blockchain, it sometimes people are thinking, well, why can't you use a database? And I think that's a really good question to ask. Um, and for let's take the enter counterfeiting anti-counterfeiting example. So let's say you have a drug manufacturer who just created a batch and they want to now ship it off to their distributors, suppliers, and then that can go off into their retail pharmacies, whatnot. So there's multiple checkpoints or, you know, shipping points that this drug will hit. Um, you can use a shared database to do it without a blockchain. You can make sure that, you know, manufacturer A trusts supplier B, and then those suppliers trust all the distribution points that they have to ship it out to. And they can all trust each other that they're not going to replace that package with another one that's 20 times cheaper. Okay. Um, and in doing so, you know, they'll have, you know, be able to sell these drugs that are ineffective, potentially dangerous. Um, and the way that they kind of ensure that this is working is at each checkpoint, a barcode could be scanned and that barcode would essentially make a, an entry into the blockchain. And that'll be a public, not necessarily public, but that'll be shared amongst whoever is part of that network. So all the parties are aware of where that specific shipment went and where it is now and where it's potentially going to go. Um, so using blockchain, what happens is that data is not stored on a single company's server or database or cloud. It's, it's distributed amongst multiple nodes. And by being distributed across different nodes, you don't have to trust on any one or two individual nodes to, to be able to trust the data because no one can change the data that's been entered. There's no sort of falsification of information that's possible. Whereas if you had it stored in a central cloud database where one person is basically able to log in and maybe make some changes, um, you know, that there's more risk involved with that sort of setup. So that's where blockchain is more helpful or more secure in that way. Um, but you can definitely ask quite some more questions to clarify, because I think there's some ways I can better clarify that. No, I mean, I think this is the this is where it gets very complicated when it comes yeah. to blockchain technology, right? When you have this trustless, so you have basically every part of the supply chain, let's say everybody has access to in this network, either it's totally public or just semi-private or whatever. Sure. So they all can validate things and make sure that the data going in is, so it's not just satellite or computer somewhere uh, who's entering everything, right? It's, I mean, obviously there, there are potential corruptions at any point when you're scanning stuff in, right? I mean, there's always... A risk there, but I think the hope is that you just you catch that sooner within somewhere in that chain, right? That there's been some there's been an error made. Well, yeah, that's the I guess that would be the hope. Um, and it depends on what you mean by error, right? There's human error, there's technology errors, um, there's like you know malicious <laughs> errors. <Yeah. laughs> so uh, that wouldn't be an error; that would be an act of a criminal act potentially. Um, right. And this is you know. In the US, I feel like in the Western side of the world or even in Europe too, we're not too concerned about that stuff, generally speaking. But when you think about developing countries like Brazil, Africa, and like, you know, China, places in China, um, there is sort of more concern about, you know, counterfeit drugs because, you know, people can't afford them there. So, People are willing to pay a lower price for whatever they can get. And I feel like that's a place where uh, this tool or this sort of model can work really well, you know? And then when it comes to blockchain, I've talked to people about credentialing. Uh, I talked to Leah Houston back in, way back in the beginning, uh, episode 18, where, again, it's instead of... For patients, obviously, controlling their their data, their health data. But for physicians, it's their credentialing data. And so, for those not aware, physicians have to have you know you have your your medical license for the states that you have your license in. You have your obviously personal information, your address, your phone number, uh, your where you went to medical school, where you did residency, where you've been on hospital staff, where you've been credentialed, and how long at various surgical centers or hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. So it can be pretty big. And so when you move to some new place or you want to try and work at a new place or let's say a new surgical center opens up, I'm using surgical because I'm in anesthesia, 
they will say, okay, we have to credential you. We have to verify that you are, you know, not a criminal, that you actually are a real physician, that you actually have some, that you, and so you have to submit all this stuff, lots of paperwork and lots and contacting, you know, medical schools and all this stuff to get all this paperwork sent to the, to these people for credentialing, even though they may even like know you, but <laughs> some, yeah. sometimes they don't know, actually know you personally because you're moving to town. So the, the thought is that with this, with the blockchain is that again, it'll be, it's, it's a data that you will hold and you'll have access to that as a physician and you can just give it to who you want. And by extension, if they, someone wants to do some data mining or that they, they can't do it without your permission, without you getting compensated in some way. Right. Is, I mean, it's basically the same thing, except that now I control all that as a physician. Aside from like the financial incentive, what are the other advantages for me controlling that versus let's say the hospital who's, you know, I've been a hospital staff for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, not only is it that you can control that data, but it's controlling the notarized credentialed data, right? So it's been timestamped that someone has checked these credentials before. So other organizations that have checked your background already have, you know, timestamped that it's been credentialed. So they don't have to redo the same work. So one huge benefit is just the speed of which you, a provider can start working at a, you know, a clinic. Um, I'm not a physician, so, but I've heard that it could take up to like, you know, three to four weeks, even three to four months in some cases for a provider to finally get, you know, fully credentialed or privileged right. for a specific, you know, clinic. So, okay. That makes sense. So that means at this point you said, okay, I graduated medical school and, you know, 2000 from, you know, university of Michigan and I've, and then it's been verified. And now every time I go a credential for in the future, no one has to send a letter to the University of Michigan saying, hey, is this person been credentialed? Right? It's already been verified within the, and that we know that it has been checked and it's good. So the only thing they have to really verify is the last, however long you've been working someplace maybe, and to talk to that hospital, did this person, you know, they have to come out practice suits or there's something like that that happened. So it, so it definitely speeds up. And I would, three to four weeks would be a, a wonderful short <laughs> amount of time. It's usually like you said, it's probably more than three to four months to get credentialed oftentimes to places. Just because, you know, you got to call people and they send things and it just takes time. Everyone's got a, a bunch of administrators doing a bunch of administrative yeah. work. So, yeah, I could definitely see how that would be advantageous to for a doc to just not have. And then if it's all done, you have to like recollect it all the time, which makes a huge difference, too. Yeah. And I've heard that, you know, depending on the physician, if it's like a, you know, a brain surgeon or something in the hospital needs them right away, cutting down you know, from three to four months to a few weeks of credentialing period, that's, that's really huge because, you know, a specific patient's life can be saved. Um, also the health system might want to get that revenue as well. So there's like a financial incentive for the health system to, to do this quickly. It saves time on the administrator or staff who's ever doing that faxing back and forth with the schools and previous, you know, employment areas. Yeah. Well, that is definitely a huge thing. And I, I can just definitely see with you if there's a, there are you know natural disasters and maybe they need extra help someplace, you can go down someplace and maybe go and provide emergency or healthcare. Cause that, I know that like during the initial part with the COVID that people were rushing to New York to try and help out. Um, so I can definitely see how that comes into play. In that. Yeah. And I think that it's not going to, so this idea behind credentialing, it's not specific to physicians or health providers. I think it's sure, going to definitely go beyond and, you know, any electrician or any sort of skill, skilled laborer or skilled um, worker that needs to be certified or credentialed, this is a system for them because now they don't have to like go back and forth between their um, their institution that they were at and the future employer that they want to be with. So it makes it much more streamlined. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that, you know, when it comes to credentialing, just about everyone's credentialed in something. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, even your high school graduation is a credential. I mean, it may not be one that you may find impressive, but it, you know, or a graduate of a college. What other, what are the cases for, for payment methods do you think are going to help in healthcare? Because uh, I, I feel like I'm starting to see private people take, uh, you know, uh, plastic surgeons take some cryptocurrency. Do you start seeing this get advanced a little bit more? And is that something that, that is part of what you're looking at? And then I guess the other thing about that is maybe just a totally separate question is how do cryptocurrencies play into these blockchain technologies that like say the patient who has their data, how does a currency within that 
work in that space? Yeah. So, um, a couple of things there. So incentivizing, incentivizing, um, providers to accept cryptocurrencies now is sort of not as difficult as it was five years ago, right? Because there's been like this acceptance of Bitcoin and Ethereum to some degree. So I think in terms of providers accepting cryptocurrencies, it's happening. It's going to be similar to the way they accept dollars. Uh, I think that's, that's happening. But when you talk about other cryptocurrencies that are more related to a specific small economy, let's say maybe a small tokenized hospital network or insurance, healthcare insurance plan. I think that's where it gets interesting. So um, there are some organizations trying to sell their own tokens as a form of fundraising as well. So that's another part of why blockchain is being used. It's basically a way to raise money. Uh, it's like, if you've heard of an ICO, initial coin offering. So that was huge. NFTs are another big way for organizations to raise money. Uh, but you know, specifically to your question, I think you're talking more about how do we create this cryptocurrency economy, crypto economy for healthcare? Is that more what you're referring I to? I think so. I'm, I, I guess, you know, it, most of the time when you say people get compensated, they've got on the blockchain or why do people actually, uh, why do they operate as nodes within the blockchain? They have to have in some incentive besides, mm -hmm. I mean, there's obviously an economic incentive in the sense that maybe they're part of the supply chain and they have to make sure everything's running properly. And so that's sort of a, a business expense, right? Like we're going to be part of this much more efficient than it would be before. And so it costs us less, but we still have to in some way have this, this system running. Whereas if you want to make it bigger, let's say nationwide or something, obviously you can't just rely on goodwill or people just to do things for no reason. They're going to have to have some sort of incentive to, to be providing this. And so they have to have, I guess when we say tokenomics, they have to have some sort of currency that's moving around that can be converted to other stuff at some point, right? Like a, it's like a different, a, well, it's a different currency. Yeah. And it's tough. I think right now there hasn't been like a, Sick, purely successful healthcare token. I know there's many out there and for anyone that's listening, who's disappointed by that, I think it's okay because there are a lot of experiments going on. There's many sorts of um, attempts at this, but finding the right incentives for miners or stakers to continue doing so. And then also incentivizing, you know, providers, patients, payers to still be involved. There's no, the secret formula for that is still, an open question. Um, but if you imagine replacing, let's say, a healthcare contract, the way that we have contracts with our healthcare um, providers or healthcare companies. Sorry, when I say healthcare, I'm talking about payers specifically. So, health payers. So, you're talking about insurance companies and, insurance and companies. hospitals, let's say, right? Yes. Okay. So, you know, they get into a deal, they have specific reimbursement rates for specific. Um, um, let's say CPT codes. That's what we sure. typically charge against. Um, so if you can imagine like a network or system where smart contracts are executed automatically. So let's say I go in for a, my annual checkup that's completed. So it is automatically kind of the money is sent to my health provider at the end of the month. So all the annual checkups that have gone on with this provider or this system, healthcare system can be aggregated at the end of the month, uh, smart contracts executed, and the payment gets sent to either that healthcare system or that individual provider. We do feel like there'll be more a peer to peer system in place in the future. So instead of you being paid by, uh, like your, you know, your employer or your health system, you know, you'll be paid directly based on the contracts you have with your health plan and with your health system and with the patients that you promise to take care of. So there'll be like some sort of complex smart contract to um, manage all of that. And you don't have to rely on your employer to do that. So there are ideas about that. It's more complicated. You know, I, you just heard me say a bunch of things and it's, it's not as simple as um, we'd like it to be, but I think that is going to be the future in many ways. It's just a matter of, you know, getting the right people to agree to how it would work and then doing many tests to make sure it's going to function properly. Cause there's many, 
uh, I guess, possible ways that can go wrong. <laughs> so just understanding <laughs> all those ways, building fail-safe systems for it, and then allowing it to flourish once it's successful. I think that's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine at some point you're going to say, well, there can be, say, 10, 12 competing systems that are different currencies that are used and then you're going to find ones that are more efficient that work better that have better maintenance with their the code or whatever and those will dominate right and that's people say okay we're going to sell our contracts in these three or four different currencies or something like that well and then in some ways if as long as you have an open exchange right you can always convert those to other tokens oftentimes right so you can convert your bitcoin to ethereum or back and forth or whatever yeah and so when you, and when you talk about smart contracts, you're basically talking about like automatically executed uh, contracts, right? So it's not like Blue Cross says, you know what, we're money's a little tight this month. We'll send it to you next month. These are like automatic, right? So you so it's a more reliable way of getting paid and get re, getting reimbursed if you're someone who's providing care, or if you're you know you make sure that the payment's going to come if you're the right. Yeah, exactly. So now like you might get a service, clinical service, and then you'll wait thirty to. 45 days to see if the health plan recognizes it as a qualified service. If it does, you'll get a copay amount. If it doesn't, you might have to, you know, fight for it. And then you have to call someone and talk to them and kind of explain to them why you think that you deserve to be reimbursed for this. Um, so by automating it, it just saves a lot of time. You don't have to, you know, rely on, people's opinions as much it's just sort of like if this service was completed then it's done then on the other the flip side of that is you know how do you know what the provider actually did you know there's no like security camera watching the experience happen and then determining through computer vision what really happened that's that's the future though i think that will be the future where everything will be sort of validated through a computer vision ai system um it's more like 10 years down the line, I think. Uh, and then like- Only the 10? Uh, I mean, I think there's going to be a hard fight for p patient privacy. So I don't know if cameras are going to be necessarily invited to the, you know, I can't. I can't, imagine having a I can't imagine having a body cam on, but I guess, uh, but I, you know, I, I suppose you can verify like, oh, here's a gallbladder. We know we took it out of someone. I guess you could argue that that's, that they actually didn't have the gallbladder, <laughs> gallbladder out, but- yeah. I mean, that's one good example. Yeah. Um, we'll see. I, I don't know the future, but I, I think that there's going to be a lot more automation in place in place and we're going to have to rely less on people, ch you know, digitally checking off a box. Like I did this, I did this, I did this. It'll be more, you do the work and then automatically you'll have the digital system recognize that you've done it. Um, and then input that into a system, which may execute a smart contract. Right. And then that would be compensated with some sort of currency or whatever it might be. And then which can be converted to something else if you want to dollars or. Right. And, and one of the issues by doing that, like, let's say, you know, you're compensated with some cryptocurrency. Now, does that cryptocurrency have fluctuate, you know, does it fluctuate in price or value over time? Because that's going to create a lot of problems. Right. Because sure. I'll wait until I get my surgery next month, you know, because yeah. it's going to um, it'll be cheaper or something or, or maybe. Some providers will take a break because they're not getting paid enough during the summer season or something like that. So there'll be like um, problems with that. So we, there will be some sort of stable coin period uh, for sure. That'll be used as a primary form of transactions. I think, I think even the United States is federal reserve is looking into central bank digital currency. So it might be that um, I don't think that'll be a future it won't, you know, last very long. I think uh, it might last for a while, but I don't think it'll be the future because we're still depending on uh, central government to kind of dictate our financial systems. Where, you know, I think people are able to do it. You know, manage their finances themselves. So you, so this is more sort of philosophical question. You see this more as moving away from the centralization and decentralized uh, decentralized nature of paying for and providing care. And and do you think that is that is made made easier by having blockchain technology? I mean, I think when it comes to finances, I mean decentralized financing now you have people just put collateral in place. They don't know anybody who's involved. They don't care what the loan is. You just say, "Hey, I want a loan for $1,000. I've got 
$1,500 of collateral in other cryptocurrency, let's say. Yeah. And you don't even know what I'm using the money for. I could be, it could be a crazy venture. It could be just building, you know, a shed in my backyard. You don't care as long as I've got the collateral. And, and so that, you know, you've moved sort of a lot of the barriers to, for, which is probably not as big a deal in our country, but in other countries where there's, it's, there's limited access to capital, right? It's a lot easier for them to get capital enough to make, maybe, you know, start a very small business or something, right? Yeah, I think that's going to be, it's happening now. There's many companies trying to, you know, let you take out a mortgage with your crypto uh, as like collateral. And I think people want to do that. They don't want to spend their, you know, Bitcoin, for example, since it may be worth more in the future. So they're holding on to dear life. <laughs> um, and I think that'll continue. I think we'll see what really happens, but that seems to be the the trend right now. So five years from now, what do you mm -hmm. see? Where do you see healthcare as transformed within this space? More when I go to the hospital, how is it going to be different? Yeah. So how how will my inter my interaction be different going in the hospital to like leaving? So I think that most interactions will start off with the telehealth experience, either through a, a chat or a video conversation, just explaining what your health situation is. Of course, if you need to come in for some physical. Um, scan or a physical review, that's going to be important too. But um, there won't be, I think the idea where we're not sure how much money we're going to have to pay for whatever we're doing in the hospital is going to, <laughs> is not going to be the case anymore. And in the future, price transparency will be much more available to not, you know, to all people that are involved. So providers, patients, nurses. So when, you know, that patient is asking the nurse how much it's going to cost, she can actually maybe tell them, you know, it'll be more uh, a direct and transparent form of um, transfer, value transfer, let's just say, because we can call it money transfer, but in the future, money is going to be defined very differently, I think. So it'll be defined maybe in Bitcoin, maybe in some other token that's involved in that community space, right? Um, so yeah, and I do think the gig economy for healthcare is going to be more popular. So You'll have maybe, you know, imaging facilities where you can, that are, that are like always open, very, very fast, clean, easy to use. People will rate them on a, like a zero, a one to five star rating system. So it'll kind of be like the Uberization of, you know, imaging facilities. So much cheaper. Um, and yeah, I think overall, just much more personalized. So people will be able to receive care that they want and that they feel that they need uh, as opposed to being cheap. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's, and I've, we talk about this all the time in the show, the number one satisfier for physicians is personal, being a personal relationship with a patient. And mm -hmm. that's something that if you, the more barriers you have between that, the, the worse the physician feels about the care and the less barriers, the better. And so I think anything that can make that better is obviously going to be to the advantage of the, <clears throat> the physician, but also the patient because they're going to get better care and it's going to feel, you know, personal for them. So, well, that's pretty exciting. I hope you're right. And I hope that we start having more control over the things. And I think to some extent we spent focus a lot of time on the show. We don't spend focus much of our time on the show on legislative and regulatory changes, I guess, that are going to bring these things in place. It seems to be people who are doing innovative things despite all those and that the, the real change we're looking for, it's not a campaign thing you can, uh, you can use, but it is sort of maybe the practical reality that it's people are just doing this on their own, right? It's the, that it doesn't, sweeping legislation is not going to bring in these, these changes about, it's just going to happen on its own. Yeah, it's, you're right. And I think it's the voice of the patient that needs to be heard. And I think that's, it's happening. Um, um, the regulators will need to listen uh, eventually. I think it takes a lot of time, decades in many cases for change to happen. Um, but it's going to be very important for us to just keep pushing forward um, and, you know, I just want to mention that when we think about how the internet affected healthcare, right, that was in the, like the nineties, people started, you know, um, looking into EMRs and databases uh, and computers, and then the internet allowed for patients to have some more accessibility to their data if, through portals, which were not really great, but, um, they <laughs> <Still> existed. <aren't. laughs> I think, um, that ability for the internet to allow for exchange of content and information is, is really, it was really important, but with content and information, it wasn't um, the full picture. 
the future is blockchain will enable the transfer of value, real value, not in terms of dollars, but whatever the value of the service or drug or therapeutic, um, even a digital app, potentially, you'll be getting that value directly peer to peer as opposed to, um, you know, the way it is now, I think. Yeah. Well, that's very exciting. And I, you know, I, I look forward to this, this future <laughs> because <Me too. laughs> we got, we got a lot of things that are, um, that are wrong in, in medicine that just aren't working. Uh, but I do, th I do see signs that things are better and some things are better. The AMR is obviously a huge barrier and it's not very advantageous to patients or physicians at this point. Uh, mm. I guess they're good to billing soft, but billing people, but outside of that, it's not really, it's never really helpful. And if anything, it's an impediment. So anything you can do to try and improve that, it, it'll be good. Well, Ray Dogum from Health Unchained, uh, check out his podcast. Uh, you can also go to his website at healthunchained.org. You can find show notes and everything at theparadox.com slash 165. Ray, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. Enjoy this. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs> <laughs>